Good afternoon. What a joy to be here with you, actually. And uh, I've been blessed by uh, grappling with this uh, text that is before us, uh, at least uh, last night, but especially this morning. In fact, I was so entranced by it this morning that I forgot that uh, I needed to come up here. <laughs> Allison asked me about 8.40, what time we needed to leave, and I said 8.45. And I thought, oh, no, 845. And anyway, so I've been asked to um, tie the, the, the bow on this uh, uh, series that you've been looking at from the Acts of the Apostles, Acts 2.42. And they uh, continued or they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching at fellowship breaking of bread, and the prayers. So you have been making your way through those four uh, components presented in Acts 2.42. That ends with a period. And then the, the Luke goes on to describe the life of this church in Jerusalem that he summarized with that statement of what they devoted themselves to. And in the paragraph that follows that verse that sums up what happened after the day of Pentecost, he says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what I've been asked to speak on. But in order to understand how it was and why it was, and what were the instruments through which uh, the Spirit, by God's grace, began bringing people to salvation and adding to their number day by day, we have to walk into the life of this uh, church in Jerusalem. And you need to understand, in fact, if you want to get one of those Bibles in the middle of your table, if you're of a mind to do that, there's not enough for everybody, but you can grab one of them. I think it's something like 1159. Uh, mine is a different version, so I have it on 911, but I think it's something like 1159 or something like that. Um, if someone finds what page it is and, and yells it out, the rest of you will be able to know. Is it 11.59? What is it? Anyone found it yet? Yes, what is it? 11.59. 11.59, all right, there you go. Already on. <laughs> so, um, here's one of the things you need to, to grapple with as soon as you turn to a, a book like the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles, like the Gospels, are narratives. And a narrative, when you read it, unlike a Pauline letter, you have to realize you're dealing with a story, a description of something that happened. And one of the things you have to ask yourself when you're reading a book like Acts of the Apostles is what the author is describing, is it prescriptive or descriptive? That is, is it teaching about what is normative in the life of the church or is it a description of what happened? They're not always the same. 
to use an example that, that uh, a Baptist would immediately understand and an Episcopalian would hope that it's true, at various places, when the Holy Spirit came upon people in the Acts of the Apostles, they spoke in tongues and prophesied. That's tough for the Baptist because they often subscribe to the fact that these kind of gifts departed with the apostolic age. But here it is, they're talking about it. Now, Anglicans and Episcopalians don't believe they departed in the apostolic age, but they don't usually want it. <laughs> so when, it, when, when the different passages in the Bible talk about people receiving the Holy Spirit, like on the day of Pentecost, they spoke in, in other languages. They spoke in tongues that they never learned. Is that normative? Is that what the normally should happen? Or is it just what happened there? And when uh, Philip went up to Samaria and preached the gospel and, and they received the gospel and were baptized, he came back to Jerusalem and he told what had happened and the apostles went up there. And when the apostles went up there, they prayed for them and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Is that normative? Or is it just what happened? Now let's get to the Acts of the Apostles in the passage we're reading. Peter has preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost after all these dramatic things happened and a great crowd of people came because the room where the disciples were when the Holy Spirit came was filled with something like a mighty wind and tongues of fire descended over those disciples who were there. And it created such a commotion that many people who were in Pentecost, who were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, Jews that had traveled there from not just Galilee, but from all over the known world, all over the Middle Mediterranean, they came and because, you know, there were three great festivals that Christians, uh, the Jews came to, Jerusalem. But only one of them was at a good time of year to travel. You see, you don't want to try to get there at Passover if you live in Tarsus or in Italy and you're in exile because you're going to have to pass over some mountain passes or you're going to be sailing during some very difficult uh, uh, storms. So the best time to come is in Pentecost, the season of Pentecost. It's usually late May, early June. We know that because we still observe Pentecost. We just observe it differently. So on the day, so this was a festival in which many Jews were there who did not live in Jerusalem. That's why they each heard the disciples speaking in a language that was their native language, the language they grew up in, in the region they were. They weren't primarily citizens of Jerusalem. So they were amazed. How is it that these Christians here, these, I shouldn't, I keep saying Christians. How is it that these Jews are speaking these languages? That's our native tongue. Peter gets up and gives the reason. 
This is what the prophet Joel promised would happen, that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall prophesy. And then he preached about the Messiah. And having preached about the Messiah, he drove home the point with these closing sentences. He whom you crucified, God raised up from the dead. Whom you crucified. It's gotten personal. And it cut them to the quick. And they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. Now that 3,000 responded to that message and were baptized. Imagine suddenly 3,000 people joining a body of about 110 120, that's all that was there on the day of Pentecost. Suddenly, you've got 3,000 people. You've got 12 apostles to baptize them. At 40-some 40 40 some baptisms a, a, a minute, it's going to take you six hours with 12 apostles. I mean, this is an all-day enterprise. You suddenly have this whole body. Now, what are you going to do with them? So suddenly the church was born. That's why we call it the birthday of the church. And so Luke then is saying, okay, he's condensing what took many months to accomplish with one verse. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We'll come back to that if we have time. Now he's going to explain the ethos of, of the church. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Is that normative? Or is it just what happened? You see my point? They were selling their possessions and giving to the poor. And if anyone had anything, need, they gave it to them. Is that what happened? Or is it normal? And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You see, I would not suggest to you that the, because this first church in Jerusalem held all things in common, that that is normative for the church today. 
but rather I would pose to you where we should ask the question, what is there in this common communal quality of the church in Jerusalem that challenges our understanding of our Christian community today and you at St. John's when we go through this church and we look at this church in Jerusalem, we should be asking ourselves some questions. What are the lessons for us in this church, for our church today? Some years ago, I did a, a teaching of uh, the, what I call the great churches of the, the New Testament. I was asked to do a teaching when, when I was a parish priest at this big, important congregation in the Oakland area of, of Pittsburgh, which is where all the universities, all the medical communities are, and Ascension Church uh, was, a, was a key church in the diocese. And they asked me to do a Lenten program, and we went through the great churches of the New Testament. One thing I discovered as we were looking at those, that they all have their individual mark, their distinctiveness, because God likes to take things and do something with the congregation in the context of which they live. So uh, one of the reasons why this church needed to hold all things in common and people needed to sell if they had any property, they obviously weren't selling their homes because they were meeting in their homes, but they were obviously selling property. And property in Israel in the first century is every bit as important as property in the south. Because it's been in the family for years. For you it might be 200 years. For them it was a thousand. To sell the family heritage. Which is passed on from generation to generation. Something very important has to happen to you. Before you think in those terms. It was a complete upheaval. What happened was what Israel had been looking for for hundreds and hundreds of years. Every Jew yearned for the Messiah. And now they suddenly believe the Messiah has come. They're still Jews, but they're Messianic Jews. The long-awaited Messiah is here. This is what life's been all about. This is what our people have always yearned for. Everything sacrificed to him. And many of the members of the church were poor. Look at it this way. What was Peter or Andrew, James and John? What were they before they became apostles? Any of you been to Jerusalem? Any place to fish there? Suddenly, they're without livelihood. Matthew was what? He abandoned the tax office. He ain't going back. The apostles themselves, and many of them had families, are now living in Jerusalem. They don't have a livelihood. And what kind of people often hung around Jesus? Prostitutes, can they do their work now? Let's hope not. <laughs> so you've got all these people that have been 
touched by the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth and now he's risen from the dead and he's poured out the promised Holy Spirit that the prophets have been prophesying for centuries about. And pilgrims have come there for the festival. You notice that even in a place like Florence, there are people from out of town on Easter Sunday. What if suddenly something broke out on Easter Sunday here that was such that it said, I can't go back till I know more about this. Well, then they're going to have to be staying in the home. Well, you all have hotels here. But there's just not enough inns in Jerusalem for all the pilgrims that have just been touched by the power of the Holy Spirit, have just experienced the Messiah, and they want to know, they need to know, they need to learn before they leave. And then once this gets out, there's streams of visitors who want to learn about the faith. They say, the Messiah has come. Those who have gone home say, the Messiah has come. You ought to go to Jerusalem. You ought to see what's going on. But they need some place to stay. And these Christian believers are so overwhelmed with what God is doing and the transformation and the power of God that they've experienced that they open up their homes. And then it begins to appeal to all kinds of people who need their lives changed. And many folks are coming to Jerusalem to die. Jews today even say, I want to go to Jerusalem before I die. So they get to Jerusalem and they hear of a Messiah and they're incorporated into the community. And now great numbers of priests, we read in Acts 6, great number of priests begin to believe. And so suddenly they're on the outs of the temple hierarchy. And then persecution begins to set in. And the persecution is not usually violent. It was occasional, like with Peter and with James, who was the first Christian martyr, and Stephen. But most of the time, it was just persecution in which you were the last one hired and the first one fired. So the church needs to become communal. They need to begin to function like a big family. And it's not just a small gathering. As we read through these six chapters of, of the Acts of the Apostles, first 3,000 come to Christ. Then 5,000, we're told, come to Christ. And then 10,000 come to Christ. This is a third of the population of Jerusalem. This is turning the whole place upside down. This is no small stuff. And what's going on here to make all this happen? They have the experience of the holiness of God. Have you ever had it? I've realized while I was preparing for this that in some ways I had the, the privilege of coming to Christ during the middle of a revival. The early 1970s in youth culture and young culture in California in the 70s was becoming a revivalistic environment. 
talking to a man at the table here who goes to Calvary uh, Chapel in, or was once a member there down in Florida where they have 25,000 people. But the first Calvary Chapel was in Costa Mesa, California. It was just one, and it suddenly was filled with people. My wife's age and my age, she was 19 and I was 21. And all kinds of people our age were coming to Christ. It was a spiritual revival. And what happens in a spiritual revival, whether it be uh, the revival that took place in Nehemiah in the Old Testament, the Franciscan revival in the 12th century, the Wesleyan revival in 18th century England, the Great Awakening in the United States in the 18th century, the Second Great Awakening uh, in the 19th century in America. You see, you, one of the things that set the stage for the American Revolution and the, uh, the American identity was the revival of the, of the 18th century when people like George Whitfield came here and preached. What brought all the colonies to a common experience was a common experience of God moving mightily and it went across colonies. And it gave them a corporate identity that enabled the whole founding of this country to take place. You see, what the problem most people know that don't know this is because there has arisen a pharaoh in Egypt who does not know Joseph. That is, there are professors and teachers of history and, and leaders that don't understand what this country owes to Christianity. They don't understand what they owe to the Judeo-Christian worldview. And they're day by day dismantling it. But I don't want to get sidetracked with that. So what happens in a revival is you become touched by the majesty and the awe of God. Still remember the English evangelist Brian Green who came to our seminary to speak when I was in seminary. And he said, you know, not Michael Green, but Brian Green. He said, you Americans... You act like you can walk up and shake God's hand. You don't know God's a consuming fire. And when you come to Christ during a time of a revival, you realize his greatness. Now, there are vestiges of this in our 20, 28, 1928 prayer book service. The reason why the vestiges are there is because Thomas Cranmer was himself, came to Christ, he came to Christ and many of the reformers came to Christ during a time when the, when the Spirit of God and the Word of God was breaking in and giving people who had grown up in a medieval understanding of things a fresh experience of God. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness which we from time to time most grievously have committed against thy divine majesty. We just prayed that in the 28 prayer book service. I still remember the first time praying those words in an Episcopal church after I came to Christ. I thought, oh my gosh, there it is. 
We acknowledge and bewail. Have you ever bewailed your sins? I don't mean just feel a little badly about it. That word bewail, that's, that's, wow, that's pretty strong, isn't it? That's a little bit over the top. That's why the 79 prayer book took those words out. Nobody experienced them. They, didn't know what to, they don't know what it's talking about. <laughs> we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Not that we occasionally did, but time to time have committed. Against what? My neighbor? My wife? My husband? No, thy divine majesty. Now, this is all about God. They've experienced, Thomas Cranmer experienced the awesomeness, the holiness of God. And that's what these people in Jerusalem were experiencing. I mean, if you're walking to the temple to say your prayers... And there's a beggar that you see every time you go there, sitting down. And as Peter is going to uh, there, uh, to the temple to pray, the beggar asks him for money. And you're walking with Peter. You're one of the early disciples of Jesus as the Messiah. You're walking with Peter. And Peter says, look, uh, look, I, I have no money. Silver and gold have I none. But what I have, I'm going to give to you. This guy has been crippled from birth. His legs are all deformed. He has to be carried there every day. He can't even walk with crutches. And everybody knows it. I don't have any silver and gold. But what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. Peter reaches out his hand. He takes his hand and suddenly the guy stands up and he's running around the temple. Is that, does that not bring... Shivers down your spine. Oh my gosh, what am I in the presence of? What is this? This isn't life as normal. You see, if we were to step in to that church in Jerusalem, we have lived with the subnormals for so long it would appear as abnormal. <laughs> when it is abnormal. Wow, the numinous, that's what theologians refer to, the numinous glow of God. You get a little bit of it in those resurrection appearances of Jesus in the, in the Gospels. Sometimes it just glows with a holiness and awe and wonder and majesty. And that majesty, that wonder, that awe, that miraculous makes anyone that has experienced it know when someone else has experienced it. There's just a common bond. If you've been to Narnia, you know when the other one's been to Narnia. And you become excited that they've been to Narnia. They've experienced this. Oh, it's wonderful. Gosh, a companion. You see, 
They continued in the, or devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. The fellowship isn't just with one another. The fellowship is with God the Father and God the Son, that eternal relationship of the Trinity. And you're taken up into that. And once you've experienced it, anyone else that has experienced it is a brother or a sister. Because they felt the awe. Defining moment in one's life. Now, so they devote themselves to fellowship in the Father and the Son. Listen to the way John describes it. I better hurry up. I'm running out of time. I just got taken up in this this morning, forgot all about time. It's like I'm back there in the revival. Listen to these words. They're familiar. You've heard him. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was manifested, and we have seen it. Yeah. Now, this is an apostle talking about what he's touched. What has he touched? He's touched the body of Jesus Christ before it was crucified and after it was risen. And he's heard Jesus teach with his own words, in his own ears. And he's looked upon the risen hands of Christ, still bearing the marks of the cross. Concerning the word of life, the life was manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that we have seen and we have heard and proclaim also to you and anyone who believes it has fellowship with us. I don't know what was covered when you looked at those first two sections. The apostles' teaching, that's the didache, the teaching of the apostles, and fellowship. It's fellowship with the apostles. It's fellowship with the apostles who have experienced all of this. And that fellowship takes you up into the relationship of fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, let's move on. And they continued when they got together with the breaking of bread. Well, that's obviously a reference to the Holy Communion. The Holy Eucharist. The Lord's Supper. It looks as if to begin with, they were doing it every day. And they were eating together in their homes. So there's a breaking of bread, their normal eating of food in the home. But in the midst of that, the communal body of Christ meeting in all these homes. Because if you've got 3,000, there's no place big enough for all of them to be. If, if they're going to meet, they have to meet in other people's homes. People like you and me are hosting these people in our houses. We're all getting together for a meal. And in the midst of the meal, then somebody takes the bread and the wine. And we share it. And Christ is present. Because you see, the breaking of bread to begin with was a fellowship meal with the risen Christ. You remember what happened on the road to Emmaus, right? On Easter night, 
late Easter afternoon? Two disciples were walking to the village of Emmaus. They were down in the dumps and downcast. They were grieving and saddened. And a stranger came and joined them. And the stranger came up and said, uh, What are you talking about? About Jesus of Nazareth? A prophet from Galilee, mighty in power? And we had thought he was the Redeemer of Israel. But the authorities crucified him. Well, well tell me more about what happened. Well, he, they, they go on. Uh, some of our women went to the tomb that morning, this morning. And they said that he, he had appeared and they saw him and he was risen. But the apostles went there and him they did not see. And then the stranger began to unfold the teachings of the Old Testament, pointing those teachings to Jesus, needing to die for the sins of the world. And they began to feel their hearts burn within them as he was talking. Well, when they were, uh, came to the place where they were going to stay, they started to go in, and the stranger was going to go on ahead. You know the story, right? The stranger was going to go off away. He was going more on the journey. And they begged him, please come in and stay. It's getting late. So they talked the stranger into coming. They set him at the table. They're going to serve him food. They put a, 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 the bread down, you know. And in, in first century Israel, you began a meal by someone taking the loaf of bread and breaking it. That's just a normal thing you do. So he's the guest. He should be waiting for them to break the bread. They're hosting him. But the guest becomes the host. <laughs> and he takes the bread, the stranger, and he breaks the bread. And suddenly their eyes are opened. Oh, my gosh. It's Jesus. They had seen him break the bread before when he fed the 5,000. He took the bread. He blessed God. He broke the bread. He gave thanks and gave it to them. That's what he did that night. And their eyes were opened. And then he disappeared. Now, if that doesn't leave you with communion chills, I don't know what does. <laughs> the hair standing up on the back of the neck. They dash back to Jerusalem. They get back to Jerusalem. And they say, we've seen the Lord. And in the meantime, Jesus has appeared to Peter. And they say, Peter's seen him too. <laughs> Not just the women. The women got the first look. Sometimes a woman's heart intuition goes right into the heart of God very quickly and we men have to think our way there so now you begin to look at all of this going on and you begin to understand how is it that God was adding to the church day by day those who were being saved well uh, this, this is is this normal God did not add them to the church 
without saving them. I want you to let that sink in. He began adding to the church day by day those who were being saved. He didn't add people to the church before saving them. He didn't save them without adding them to the church. There was no such thing in this gathering as a nominal believer. And there's no such thing as a solitary Christian. We have all kinds of people who have come to Jesus watching the television evangelist and never plugged themselves in to the local body of the church. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm very spiritual. Oh, what church do you go to? Oh, I don't go to a church. That is unknown in the New Testament. And another thing that's unknown is pew warmers. <laughs> he was adding day by day those who were being saved. And they were filled with corporate prayer. Oh, my. And miracles were happening. You ever seen a miracle? Let me tell you a story of one of them. And then I'll open it up if you have questions. When I was a priest in McKeesport, Pennsylvania, um, my assistant, Father Kevin Higgins, was called to be a missionary to um, the Muslim people in Pakistan. And off he went. And uh, um, uh, we had just recently taken, taken under our wing, we had, uh, St. Stephen's was a church of about uh, 250, 260 people on an average Sunday in the middle of a poor ghetto area. We just... For some reason, God blessed it, and we began to grow. Day by day, those being saved. We were the only church in the Diocese of Pittsburgh between 1984 and, and 1990 that grew every year. Though we shouldn't, demographically, shouldn't have grown. But God can do what God wants. So we were growing. And we took two other congregations in the area under our wing. But my assistant is gone. And I'm on the commission on ministry, so there's a man, I'm looking at people coming through. <laughs> and a man named Carl Neely had just uh, retired from the military. He was a colonel. He had helped um, get the Patriot missile through Congress. You know, the Patriot missile that shut down, uh, knocked down all those scuds during the Gulf War. He had helped get that through um, Congress. But he felt like he was called to the priesthood, so he was going through the commission on ministry. He'd gone through seminary and already, and I said to the bishop, I want that guy. <laughs> he was about 55 or so. So he and his, he, he and his wife, Pat, came early on at the, uh, at the first of the year. He'd only been with us about three months or four months. It was a Saturday after Easter. I'm having a vestry meeting with one of these smaller congregations that we're overseeing. And I get a phone call. Father Neely collapsed when he was speaking to some young people thinking of going to, into the priesthood. I don't know if they were young or not. People thinking of the priesthood. Was life flighted to St. Francis Hospital. So as soon as the vestry meeting's over, I drive down to St. Francis Hospital there in Pittsburgh. I walk into the ICU unit. 
where, where Carl is. He's unconscious, tubes connected all over him. And as I'm walking out, the doctor comes up just as I stepped out of the ICU uh, unit. And he says, are you the, uh, the pastor? And I said, yes. He said, you need to prepare the family for the worst. This man either needs a new heart or a miracle. And we don't have a new heart waiting fast enough. You need to prepare the family for the worst. I no sooner finished talking with him, walked down the hallway, and there I see his wife, Pat, coming towards me. I said, Pat, we need to talk. So we went into a little side room, and I just told her straightforwardly, I didn't soften it at all. I said, the doctor just told me he needs either a new heart or a miracle. So we prayed. I'll never forget her prayer. She said, Lord, you know how much I love Carl. He is the love of my life. But I know you love him more. So I surrender him to your will, whatever it is. Amen. Then she and I go into the hospital room. Um, I should tell you that um, uh, since I came to Christ during the revival, all kinds of things happened. One of them was I was given the gift of tongues. I still remember when my bishop, who was interviewing me for the whole discernment process, said, Lawrence. He always called me by my last name. Lawrence, do you speak in tongues? I said, Bishop, I can if I have to. <laughs> he looked at me from beyond his desk and said, do you think I ought to? I said, Bishop, that's entirely between you and God. That's not my business. Good answer, young man. Well, anyway, back to the hospital bed. We go in there. I anoint him with oil. Say the prayer of anointing. Pray in tongues. Saturday afternoon. Monday, he's out of the hospital. He didn't get a transplant. He got a miracle. He got a new heart. It was just done by God. Miracles can't happen. And when miracles like that happen, people think, maybe there's something to this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe there's something to this. We serve a powerful God. The problem is we domesticate him. But the words are right there if we want to read them. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Don't we sing that? Don't some of us say, 
we acknowledge and be well our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed in thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty. Oh, my. What we're saying is, Lord, you are holy. But what's amazing is you're willing to slum with the likes of us. He's willing to have fellowship with us. If he is willing to have fellowship with us, who should I not have fellowship with who has experienced the fellowship with him? And then pretty soon a spirit of generosity happens to the church. And a spirit of fellowship and love. And when that happens with the body, the Lord begins to add to the number day by day those whom he's saving. And then he knows he has a place they can come and be healed and restored and loved and nurtured. Well, my time's up. Yours has just begun. What are the lessons that you and I can learn from our life in the church today, from this church in Jerusalem? I'll just leave it there for you to think about.